Hey guys, before we get into today's amazing show, I want to recommend to you one of my favorite history podcasts that I listen to. Dead Ideas, the podcast of extinct thoughts and practices, explores ideas and practices once believed to be true, but no longer. Starting May 13th, they will be starting a new series all about Viking berserkers. This series will cover not only berserkers, but the whole of the Viking world. From all thingy lawsuits to the hotly debated topic of shield maidens, this new series by the Dead Ideas podcast is one that you will not want to miss. and welcome to the History of Vikings. Before we get into today's show, I have two important things to tell you. If you enjoy the History of Vikings, then do me a favor and write me a review. I would love to hear your feedback. Secondly, if you have any good episode ideas, questions, or know someone that you think I should have on the show, feel free to contact me and I would be delighted to hear from you. The easiest way to contact me is via my email address, which is noah at thehistoryofvikings.com. Today's show is something quite special, and I think both you and I are in for a real treat. Today's show will be guest hosted by a truly remarkable gentleman named Pete who runs a acclaimed and delightful YouTube channel called History Time. On Pete's YouTube channel there are videos about all sorts of exciting topics of history especially quite a few in relation to the Vikings. Today Pete will be giving us a guided tour of Viking Age Britain. That being said I'm going to step away from the microphone and listen along with you to the wonderful work that Pete has prepared for us today. Pete take it away. In the year 865, a great army of Scandinavian warriors appeared off the eastern shores of Britain. In glittering mail with gilded swords and deadly spears, they had come from all corners of the Scandinavian world to bring death upon the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Vikings had come to Britain before. For close to a century, in fact, the dark sails of their dragon boats had been an all-too-familiar occurrence at remote monasteries and bustling trade centres. They'd even settled down to make new lives for themselves in the far north and across the sea in Ireland. Yet, as the hundreds of war vessels manned by thousands of battle-hardened warriors came ashore that summer, amulets of Thor and Odin clearly visible around their necks, it soon became clear that this force was different. It wasn't just that it was a larger army than those that had come before it, it was that this one was headed straight for the jugular. Rather than focusing on wealthy ports and monasteries, this army shot directly for the ruling monarchies of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, in an attempt to stamp out their existence entirely and build anew in their own image. After making landfall in East Anglia, an ancient realm that had thrived for three centuries since the fall of the Western Roman Empire, they extorted horses from the helpless king Edmund, before promptly making their way north to the neighbouring kingdom of Northumbria, once the most powerful of the lot, now beset by civil war. Within weeks they succeeded in killing the king, Ayla, and conquering the land for themselves. Rather than heading back aboard their longships, laden down with plunder and prisoners, this great army of Norsemen and Danes, likely drawn from every Viking settlement in northern Europe, remained upon the island, heading back south to East Anglia before long to make a martyr out of King Edmund and to claim his kingdom too. They hadn't just come to plunder, 
This time they'd come to conquer and to settle the land. After they were finished, nothing would ever be the same again. By 878, after a 13-year blitzkrieg, which saw the destruction of every Anglo-Saxon kingdom bar one, the last remaining kingdom, Wessex, and its young king, Alfred, managed to defeat the last remnants of the great army at a place named Eddington in Wiltshire. Alfred had saved his kingdom, but as the smoke cleared from the maelstrom of violence that had become the norm over the past decade and more, the political map of Britain had been completely redrawn. In the place of the old Anglo-Saxon kingdoms in the south and sitting firmly alongside the original inhabitants of the far north, now resided a plethora of new Viking states. As the weeks, months and years went by, it became clear to Alfred and his contemporaries that, like it or not, the Vikings were here to stay. A new age had dawned, and the older inhabitants of Britain would either have to adapt to it, or go down in flames. The Viking chieftain who Alfred had defeated at Eddington was Guthrum, a ruthless sea king who had probably arrived slightly later than the original leaders of the great army, Ivar, Halfdan and Ubba, all already dead by this point, younger warlords having taken their places. In the aftermath of Eddington, Guthrum, the last great leader of the army, seems to have had a change of heart. Rather than joining his old comrade in Valhalla, he moved back eastwards to settle down in East Anglia and rule as a king. Yet unlike most of the other Vikings in Britain at the time, he brought back with him something from Wessex, a uniquely non-Viking characteristic. When Guthrum settled his warriors in East Anglia that year, he went as a Christian under the new name Athelstan, with Alfred as his godfather. However much this may have been a ruse to begin with, this change of character apparently seems to have remained with Guthrum for the rest of his days. For a decade to come, whilst East Anglia likely still harboured nests of Vikings, coming over from the continent to raid, Guthrum wouldn't go to war again. He'd changed, and in doing so, he'd laid the foundations for the conversion of many more of his kin over the years to come, perhaps a precursor to the eventual integration between Saxon and Dane that would occur over the next century and more. Whilst Saxon culture inevitably rubbed off on at least some Vikings after they came to Britain, the reverse is true as well. Scores of people from the lowest rungs of Anglo-Saxon society are thought to have escaped from slavery to become Vikings themselves, seeking service aboard longships and within warbands. Perhaps most importantly, however, Alfred and the West Saxon political elite adopted the Scandinavian tendency to fortify certain settlements against outside attack, a policy not, a policy not particularly used before this time a policy not particularly used before this time. Throughout Wessex, these new strongholds, known as burrs, began to spring up to act as a safe haven for local people from attack. These fortified settlements gave enough time for townspeople and farmers to fend off attackers behind their walls and to await relief forces. In time, these burrs would become the large towns of the medieval period, and in many cases, the cities that we know today. To the south of East Anglia lay Essex, the old realm of the East Saxons, a marshy land of inlets and waterways, long under the sway of Wessex before the coming of the Vikings. Essex would remain a den for pirates and incoming Scandinavians from the continent for decades to come, though small pockets of fearful East Saxons still clung on to normal life as much as they could amidst the reeds and the marshes. For the most part, they now looked fearfully to new Scandinavian overlords. Still further to the south lay Kent, the oldest Anglo-Saxon kingdom. Like Essex, Kent had long been a vassal of the West Saxons, yet still retained its own unique culture and local rulers. There, a hard 
hard-fought war had been waged against the Scandinavians during the 860s and 870s. And finally, with Alfred's victory at Eddington in 878, some relief had come for the battered inhabitants of England's far southeastern extremity. Though places off the shore, such as the Isle of Sheppey, would remain staging posts for Vikings for generations to come. All along the southern coast of Wessex, trading towns such as Southampton had once thrived as centres of commerce, seeing incoming vessels from Francia and Frisia bring in their wares from as far afield as the Mediterranean. Now most of these centres lay abandoned, their inhabitants either having fled or been enslaved by Viking raiders. Further west still, at the far extremity of southern Britain, lay the old realm of the Britons. This was a truly ancient place, older than any of the Saxon realms, and one never fully subjugated by their West Saxon neighbours. There, the kings of Dumnonia bided their time in their ancient castles and hilltop fortresses, waiting for the perfect moment to try and reclaim their lost lands. It was a realm that had existed since the legendary Age of Heroes in the 5th century that gave rise to the tale of King Arthur, a century or more before the supremacy of the Anglo-Saxons. They saw in the coming of the Vikings a means by which to pursue their own independent struggle against Wessex, not only providing a safe haven at times for Viking newcomers, but even allying themselves to them on occasion to fight back against their old enemy. Just to the north, across the Bristol Channel, lay the similarly ancient kingdoms of Wales. Like Dumnonia, these were Brythonic-speaking survivors from the chaotic mess of warlords and invasions that followed the Roman withdrawal from Britain in the early 5th century. A dizzying array of kingdoms and principalities had long existed there in the mountains and valleys, long pitting their warriors against each other in a centuries-long struggle for supremacy, both against fellow Welshmen and against the Anglo-Saxons across the border to the east. Just like in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of modern-day England, the Viking Age had been tough on the Welsh kings. In particular, the southwestern kingdom of Divid. The Welshmen there, having suffered incursion after incursion from the thriving Viking towns that had sprung up across the sea in Ireland. At first, these invaders had carried off goods and plunder, back to the slave markets and bartering grounds of Dublin and Waterford. But before long, they began to overwinter in Wales, using islands and coves that still bear unmistakably Norse names today such as Flatome, as staging grounds for further raids. Unlike in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, however, and in the far north of Britain, these inroads never amounted to much more than brief overwinters and small colonies. In the northern kingdom of Gwyneth, however, traditionally one of the strongest of the Welsh kingdoms, and long ago a real contender for the position of superpower in Britain during that murky epoch that followed the exodus of the Romans, something quite extraordinary had happened during the Viking Age. A powerful leader had arisen there, one who, like Alfred in Wessex, is traditionally regarded in the Welsh sources as truly deserving of the title, Great. Rodri the Great, King of Gwyneth, not only successfully fought off his share of Viking raiders in the 850s and 860s, just as the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms began to burn on the eastern side of Britain, but he managed to use the renown he gained from defending his borders to further exert his influence outside of his traditional heartlands. The neighbouring Welsh kingdom of Powys, immediately to the east, was the first to fall, but before long he sent his warriors south into Ceredigan and towards Divid. For the first time in well over 200 years, Gwyneth was growing. Before long, like Alfred in Wessex, Rodri began to conceive of the idea of a strong unified Wales, an unheard of and seemingly impossible concept up until this point. Just like in Wessex, it was outside invasion from the Vikings, and the unity forged out of the necessity of fighting back that had made this a reality. In 878, however, just as Alfred won his great victory against Guthrum, and thus solidified his nation's survival, Rodri faced an outside invasion of his own, 
Not from the Vikings this time, but from the Mercian kingdom to the east, traditionally the most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdom before the rise of Wessex in the first half of the 9th century, and still a contender for power, even with Vikings settling down all over its eastern portion, and a puppet king on the throne. Rodri died that year in 878, killed in battle by Mercian swords. His sons, however, placed on the thrones of Gwyneth, Powys, and Sislewig by the Mercian lords, themselves likely wishing to curtail any potential of a powerful unified Wales on their doorstep, Rodri's sons vowed to uphold his cause, knowing that one day and soon the Vikings would return. Meanwhile, to the east, times had been hard in Mercia of late. That puppet ruler now in charge was Cholwulf, the last Mercian king in history and one of uncertain origins. The last fully legitimate king, Burgred, had fled to Rome in the mid-870s in fear for his life. Having witnessed the kings of Northumbria and East Anglia being murdered one after the other, their royal lines extinguished forever. Yet, with Alfred's victory in 878, had come a brief respite, for the western portion of the country at least, which remained under its own native nobility, divided from the Danish-held eastern Mercia by the old Roman road of Watling Street. That eastern portion soon became known as the Five Boroughs. The Five Boroughs wasn't so lucky, being permanently ceded to the Vikings, who began to settle there in large numbers, leaving a permanent trace on the Five Borough towns of Nottingham, Derby, Leicester, Stamford and Lincoln for generations to come, and a remaining legacy in place names to this day. In the western portion of Mercia, Saxon control lingered on as a shadow of its former self under the control of Chilwulf, seeing more and more nobles and farmers alike fleeing across the border from the east to bolster their numbers. Though just across the Thames to the south, the ever expansionist and ambitious Alfred gazed northwards, seeking to exert his influence there and add the Kingdom of Mercia to his idea of a unified Angle land. To the north of the five boroughs, past the inhospitable Fens, the Wash and the River Humber, lay Northumbria, once made up of two distinct Anglian kingdoms that had carved out lands for themselves from the formerly Romano-Britain-held lands during the 6th and 7th centuries. The southernmost, Deira, was based around the town of Eofowich, by the Humber estuary. The other, Bernicia, had its seat of power at the formidable fortress of Bebenberg, modern-day Bamborough on the eastern coast. The two kingdoms had been unified under a single monarchy during the 7th century, though the fall of Eofowich in the 860s to the great Viking army saw this fragile unity crumble away for good. By 878, Eofowich had been under Viking rule for over a decade, and in that time it had gained a new name. Over the years and decades to come, it would become one of the largest cities in northern Europe, a bastion for Viking culture and trade for more than two centuries or more. There, goods and commodities from as far afield as Central Asia, Constantinople, Northern Africa and Italy flowed into the packed city streets and markets, making its rulers and townspeople wealthy and prosperous in the process. That settlement was, of course, the city of Jorvik, a Viking settlement that would soon begin to rival Dublin in its commercial importance for the Scandinavians of Britain. In the first few years after the great heathen army conquered Northumbria, the leaders of the expedition, Ivar, Halfdan and Ubba, had set up a puppet ruler in order to legitimise their rule and to ease the transition to Scandinavian overlordship, much like they later did in Mercia. His name was Egbert, but soon enough, they did away with Egbert completely. By the mid-870s, 
Having finally given up on conquering Wessex, Halfdan had himself made king in Northumbria, much like Guthrum would do slightly later in East Anglia. Though unlike Guthrum, Halfdan remained resolutely a pagan. He and his warriors settled the land, likely bringing over some women and children from Scandinavia, but also intermarrying with the locals. At least some semblance of Anglo-Saxon identity survived in Deira, yet the language and place names became notably Scandinavian for more than a century to come. Though soon enough, by around 877, Halfdan was on the move again, heading across the sea this time to Ireland to stake a claim to the Kingdom of Dublin. He was killed there within the confines of a bleak northern loch off the northern Irish coast, and in the wake of his death, Northumbria came under the rule of a coalition of ruling Viking magnates for close to a decade to come. Interestingly, by the time a Scandinavian king again came to rule in the north by the name of Guthrith, just like Guthrum Athelstan in East Anglia, he may have at least in part been a Christian king and certainly tolerated the Christian beliefs of his subjects, perhaps just adding Jesus to his existing list of deities alongside Odin and Thor in order to hedge his bets. Further north along the coast lay Bebenberg, an imposing clifftop citadel perched atop a rocky outcrop facing into the cold North Sea. Bebenberg, once home to the ancient line of Bernician kings, had never been conquered during its centuries-long history, and now the lords of Bambra looked on with horror as they saw their southern rivals decimated and colonised by warriors from beyond the sea. Yet as the years went by and the dust and bloodshed of the initial invasion finally settled, the Anglian lords of the north began to see the Viking invasion as an opportunity in itself, a chance to exert their own independence once more. For close to a century to come, until the reign of Alfred the Great's grandson saw the emergence of a unified England become a reality in the 920s, albeit only for a brief time, this unique and remote enclave of Anglian culture and language survived up there in the north, beset on all sides by Vikings to the south, Britons from Cumbria to the west, and the rapidly merging cultures of the Scots and the Picts from the north. In time, another powerful foe would emerge too, in the form of Irish Vikings, possible descendants of Ivar the Boneless, ruthless pagan warriors who sought to exert their authority from their power base of Dublin to control the entirety of the north of modern-day England. Up until the time of the Great Heathen Army, Vikings had arguably had their greatest successes of all in Ireland. There, they had ravaged monasteries since the end of the 8th century and eventually established thriving commercial centres. Ancient kingdoms and dynasties there had set aside their differences for a time to do battle against the newcomers, some of whom had originated from the north, sailing around the northern tip of Britain from Norway, others having sailed from the south, spilling out of the river systems of West Francia, one of the rapidly fragmenting remnants of Charlemagne's Carolingian Empire, once hailed as the father of Europe, now rife with feuding local lords and brimming with nests of Scandinavian piratical raiders. Yet before long, not only did the Irish kings fall back to their old ways of doing battle against one another, but some even began to recruit Vikings to fight in their battles for them. This allowed the Vikings to fully integrate themselves into the existing political system as swords for hire. Later still, temporary Viking settlements on river mouths became prosperous towns, Dublin being the largest but other notable settlements growing up at Waterford, Wexford, Limerick and Cork. By 878, the lines had already begun to blur between Norsemen, Irish and Dane. Vikings could just as often be seen fighting each other in the armies of regional Viking kings as they could be seen fighting as a unified force against Irishmen. The late 870s are often seen as a time of relative peace between Vikings and Irishmen, the former having already integrated themselves into the political system for the most part, though it wouldn't be long before their descendants again 
began to grow in power, eventually seizing control of Jorvik and terrorising both sides of the Irish Sea for decades to come. Just to the north of Ireland, within the sprawling mass of archipelagos and islands that lie between modern-day Ulster and western Scotland, the line between Viking and Gael had begun to blur even more than in Ireland. There had once existed a powerful kingdom originating to the south that had spread north to encompass the majority of Scotland's rugged western coastline. Its name was Dalriata, and for a time in the 5th and 6th centuries, it had been one of the most powerful realms in Britain, launching campaigns to the Isle of Man and the Orkneys, as well as against the growing power in Northumbria. Times were hard up on the west coast of Scotland during the Viking Age, and by the late 8th century, the inhabitants of Dalriata were one of the first areas to be truly hit. After Norwegians began raiding the shores of the Hebrides in the late 8th century, intensifying their raids during the 9th, and finally settling down to colonise by the 820s and 830s, the Dalriatans were either forced to move westwards or adapt to a new life under new overlords. Many of them did, pledging their allegiance to an incoming Norse warrior elite, some of them retaining their old ways largely unchanged, others entirely or partly adopting Norse customs and even religion. By the 870s, intermarriage and merging had become so common that it was now almost impossible to differentiate between Norse and Gael, leading to the emergence of a brand new, uniquely Norse-Gael culture. The Scottish Isles would remain resolutely unique with its blend of Scandinavian and Gaelic culture well into the late medieval period. Those of the Dalriatan elite who had fled westwards during the early days of the invasions found there in the rugged mountains and deep forests of the north a mysterious and elusive people, painted men the Romans had called them, covering themselves in intricate tattoo with wild long hair, separated from much of the rest of Britain by the difficulty and harshness of their natural geography. The Picts had lived up there in the north for millennia long fighting against the Romans for their independence, never fully being subjugated, despite numerous hard-fought attempts. The Picts, however, remain one of the most unfortunate casualties of the Viking Age. Their unique pictorial script has never been fully deciphered, meaning they remain one of those meaning they remain one of those all too unfortunate cultures who are unable to tell us their own story. Instead, we have to rely on others, such as the Gaels, to tell it for them. It seems that the Picts fought their own series of wars against the Vikings, winning some battles, but for the most part, being pushed back, just like their neighbours, the Dalriadans to the west. Eventually, these two formerly distinct people began to merge, likely making common cause out of the necessity of survival. The 9th century is an incredibly murky time in the north of Britain, with very little concrete evidence remaining to confirm what happened. But out of the chaotic mess of waves of invasion, a new culture emerged, possibly instigated by some members of the exiled Dalriadan warrior elite, along with a sizable Pictish population. The first great leader of the north was Kenneth MacAlpine, allegedly a former Dalriadan king, but in the records apparently calling himself King of the Picts. Before long, this new royal family began to call themselves Kings of the Scots, a Gaelic term previously used to refer to residents of Dalriada. By the 10th century, Pictish culture had died out entirely, only to be replaced by a new Scottish one. Just like the House of Rodri in Northern Wales and the House of Alfred in Wessex, this new elite would in time form a strong centralised state, eventually expanding outwards to encompass the entirety of the north. Though in 878, these kings engaged themselves still in a baptism of fire, waging a lengthy, largely undocumented war against Viking incursions, perhaps even more brutal than those fought in England and Wales. Yet there was another kingdom in the north too, formerly based at the imposing citadel of Alt Clud on the coast of the River Clyde. After surviving intact for more than three centuries, the citadel of Alt Clud was finally sacked and destroyed by Vikings in the 870s, perhaps under Ivar the Boneless. 
populace. Yet these hardy people pushed on, re-establishing a new base of power slightly upriver, the burnt-out remnants of their ancient capital still visible upon the horizon. Like the Welsh and the Cornish, these people were Britons, the last vestige of the old North Kingdoms that had thrived in the wake of the Roman imperial extraction and before the coming of the Anglo-Saxons. The kings of Strathclyde were destined to merge somewhat with Vikings over the years, retaining their own Brythonic culture and language, but adopting Viking raiding and fighting techniques, as well as actual Viking settlers in Galloway for a time. Over the coming years, Strathclyde extended its rule south into Cumbria, the seat of the ancient kingdom of Regeth, extinguished long ago by the kings of North like Gwyneth in northern Wales, as a result of the coming of the Vikings, Strathclyde was growing larger. Yet still, the rulers of all of these disparate kingdoms and cultures knew that just over the sea in northern Europe, within the sprawling rivers of Francia, the mudflats of Denmark, the fjords and mountains of Norway, and amidst the marshes of Frisia, ever larger fleets of Vikings amassed day by day, drilling, training, and preparing themselves to try their luck once more against the kingdoms of Britain.